Welcome to the Government Huddle with Brian Chittister, a new podcast from Government Marketing University. My entire career has been dedicated to marketing in the government space. And in the beginning, I never cared about the why. I was completely focused on the how. It was all about the tactics, the analytics, the ROI, rinse and repeat. Then I decided I wanted to understand these programs and technologies the same way our customers do. It opened up a whole new world for me. And that is what this show is about, aligning the why with the how, taking a deep dive on current trends, making bold, educated predictions about the market, learning from expert guests, and discovering innovative concepts on how to respond to all of this. So join us as we talk about all things government marketers need to know about today, tomorrow, and beyond. Come on, let's huddle up. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Different kind of show coming at you today. Since I started this podcast, I've gotten a lot of questions, mostly through LinkedIn, but some from friends, on various different topics. And I ended up seeing some patterns in the questions. So I thought it would be fun to do a show completely dedicated to answering some of them. To help me with that, I've invited founder and CEO of Government Marketing University, Luann Brosman, onto the show to answer some of these as well. Luann, welcome to the show. Hi, Brian. I am so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. And for some of my listeners, a lot of you probably know uh, Government Marketing University. If you don't, you should check them out. Even if you do know Government Marketing University, there's so much going on that it's probably difficult to understand uh, what what you're actually doing over there. So why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of what GMARCU is, how you founded it, and and some of the initiatives that you're doing right now. Absolutely. So Government Marketing University, which we call GMARCU for short, is coming into its fifth year. So we launched in 2015, even though I had the idea back around 2007, because I recognized that there wasn't a platform out there where everyone that has knowledge to share to help us all be better marketers and salespeople and business development people within the U.S. public sector would have a place to come and learn that knowledge. So we are a marketplace of knowledge. Anybody that has anything to share, we welcome them to come and provide us with information. Uh, We also have several ambassadors, which are one of my more exciting pieces of GMARQ. And ambassadors are all former government, federal, state, and local um, executives. And they love to give back. So we use them on panels. Our government marketers can actually have time with them on the phone. We have them write blogs. And they're really an exciting group, and we really learn a lot from them. We also, as a lot of your listeners will probably know, have our annual conference called GAIN, G-A-I-N. It stands for Grow, Accelerate, Innovate, and Network. We're also coming into our fifth year for GAIN. We've grown about 30% year over year. Last November 2019, for our fourth annual GAIN, we had 312 government marketers in the room. And that doesn't include all of our wonderful vendors and partners um, and sponsors that were in the room as well. So it's a great time to come together. Obviously, because of COVID-19 this year, we have made the decision to take it virtual. And while that made me sad initially, because we love coming together face-to-face, and we know that that will come back again, um, I'm starting to get really excited because, as we know, there, there, 
marketers are pivoting all of their face-to-face -face events to virtual events. We understand, we get that. But how do we make it more exciting? How do we teach our government marketers how to really do virtual events in a way that their government prospects will really grab hold and attend and, and stay tuned in during that event? So we're thinking up some really cool, innovative ways. We're talking with experts in the market today about how to do that best. One of the things that we'll be doing is we can't expect government marketers to sit in front of their computer for eight hours. That just, I'd pull my hair out if I had to do that. <laughs> so what we'll be doing is over four days. So we're starting on November the 10th, Tuesday, Thursday, Tuesday, Thursday, the following week. And we'll do two hours a day. And each of the four days will be mapped to grow, accelerate, innovate, and network. Each day we'll have a keynote speaker so that we've got something really exciting um, as well as training. So I'm very excited about it. We'll also be announcing and having our award ceremony for our Gainer Awards, 2020 Gainer Awards. So I also encourage listeners to um, come to gmarku.com and under connect with our Gainer Awards, you will be able to submit for your, um, to be a finalist and hopefully then a winner. You can submit for yourself. You can nominate a friend or a colleague. If you are a vendor out there or a media company, please recommend one of your, um, one of your customers. We also have within GMarkU, um, and I'll wrap this up. I know I could talk about GMarkU, Brian, forever, but we, it's a community, um, a community of government marketers coming together. So we encourage people to come. We have a career center where we post current job openings. We have a lot of communities of interest. We have one around healthcare. We have one called Soul Survivors. These are for government marketers that are um, an organization of one, and we know there's a lot of those. We have a very active mentor protege program. We have a discussion board. So just a lot of activities wrapped around for government marketers to come and learn. Lots of exciting stuff. I know throughout my career, one of the things that I noticed is there's so much out there for B2B marketers, uh, B2C marketers, but there's nothing out there for B2G marketers. And I know when, when I was at Imix Group, I would, uh, I know Mark Antower talks about this. I would blog on the Imix Group um, platform to try to talk about government marketing, but you have really created uh, a place for government marketers to go to not only learn and grow, but to collaborate network. It's been fantastic. Um, so thank you for pulling that together on behalf of government marketers out there. Um, and, uh, and providing an area for us to learn more about our profession. And, well, you know, Brian, you're a prime example and I, I talk about you often. So your ears are probably burning. Um, you know, you are a, a really up and coming, um, thought leader in the government marketing space. So thank you for all that you do. Uh, you created the podcast huddle and I think you're up to 11 now. I might be your 12th and that's pretty amazing. And I, I encourage listeners to please come and listen to all of Brian's podcasts. They're really good. And then we've got several as well. You know, we have our, our quarterly program on federal news network, which is a strong strategic partner of ours. And all of those are out there as well. So there's a lot of great free information to help government marketers out on gmarku.com. I appreciate that plug. And speaking of reaching out, so today we have a special episode. It's going to be a little bit different format than some of our normal episodes. And throughout the recording of some of these podcasts, as I've had different guests come and go, I've gotten some feedback from people and some questions around certain things that they wanted answers to. And I thought, why not have an episode where we just kind of bring some of these questions to the forefront and have a discussion? So I want to kick things off with the first one, um, and it's a pretty simple one. What are some of the new and innovative marketing opportunities that government marketers can use to reach their government prospects? Um, 
Luann, I'll let you start. I, I know you're having conversations with government marketers out there. Your ID8 series has been great um, and uh, provided some collaboration between uh, folks in our space. But what have been some of the uh, innovative things that you've seen marketers do, especially right now in the middle of COVID? Yeah, um, several things. First off, you know, not that this is new, but I always like to share with marketers that you know, I've never worked for the government, but I've always been in government marketing on the industry side. So I, I have always felt like I am doing my little part to help our government. And I hope that all of our government marketers within GMARQU feel that way, because it really is true. You know, the content that we're creating, uh, the events that we're holding is what's educating government on what technology is out there. So it's a good way to look at it. Absolutely. And, you know, when you look at people like Suzette Kent, you know, she is works in government. She is our federal CIO. What she has done since she's been around for the past couple of years, I think is, is, is just outstanding, really driving the efforts between um, behind IT modernization, between artificial intelligence, which is really real now. It's out there. There's lots of examples of how government is using that. And I think that. You know, the federal industry side, we're truly at the forefront of helping our government customers excel at their missions. And because government is, I believe, at the forefront of newest, greatest technologies, it's a win-win and we're all educating each other and we're, we're really helping there. But some of the ones that, you know, from uh, talking about reaching our government customers and prospects, I'm really enamored these days with the ability of the confluence between uh, consumer-based marketing and government marketing. And what I mean by that is, you know, we all watch Netflix or Hulu or YouTube videos, and you see this, the commercial comes on, it's a circle that, that counts for 30 seconds, and you're, you're watching an ad. You're able to do that now to reach your government customers. So that's where that confluence of consumer-based marketing and government marketing, where you can now do your advertising and reach your government prospects in their homes. I mean, that's unheard of that we've been able to do that. That's something that we forget about is that the people out there we're trying to reach are just people too, right? They consume the same type of information that we do um, on the same types of platforms that we do. And they, we can reach them in the same way that the B2C marketers out there look to reach us. Like you said, whether it's targeted ads, um, you're sitting at a baseball game and you get you, you see ads out in the outfield, same type of thing. You, there's just people doing their jobs and we have to think about the different places they, uh, they like to seek information or um, live their everyday life in terms of how we reach them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a great way to think. Don't just, don't just pigeonhole them in an agency building in downtown DC, right? Um, which leads us to geotargeting, right? Geotargeting, geofencing. While it's been around for a while, I think it's it's really being used broadly now. And, and it's fascinating to me. I spoke with a company that specializes in this technology recently, and they talked about working with a government marketer who really wanted to target um, the Pentagon because it was pre-programmed marketing, which we all talk about. Please get in front of those RFIs and RFPs with your marketing and brand awareness because we know the contracting officers are Googling you long before the RFI is hitting the street. And that was an example here, but obviously probably the Pentagon walls are some of the, you know, the hardest walls to penetrate um, with trying to get geofencing, geotargeting. But now they're actually able to geotarget right into the parking lot of the Pentagon. So when those potential decision makers are walking that 15 minute from their car to reach the Pentagon, you're reaching them and they're on their phones while they're walking. So 
I think that they need, you need to think outside the box and not just think about being around the block of an agency or maybe doing conference wrapping by circulating around the uh, convention center. But think about things like Pentagon parking lot. You know, who'd have thunk that we could do that? Geofencing is a good one. Um, One of the things that I've liked actually is there's been some unique ways that we've looked on how to deliver content. And you mentioned Netflix earlier, and I think we're in a situation now where we want to binge information. And the, the analogy I like to give is when um, when you go to purchase a car and I know everybody's heard this now, you go to purchase a car, you, you do all your research online, but you're going from website to website, to article, to, um, to a myriad of different areas. Now there's platforms that allow you to serve up that content in a Netflix type fashion. So you can just move to the next piece into the next piece into the next piece, keep that person within, um, the, the content repository. And then all the analytics are right there. You track it. So you're serving them up the information that, that they want when they want it. Um, and you and can how see how much exactly and how they're engaging with it. So that's been that's been one of the more innovative ways that I've kind of seen, uh, at least from a content delivery standpoint, which has been pretty cool. Couldn't agree more. And yeah. just to wrap that up is that you know, videos and podcasts have been around, but I'm just amazed how many marketers still don't focus on that. So um because of these new ways of delivering this information on these unique platforms, make sure you're doing videos and you're doing podcasts mm-hmm. to reach your audience. So the, the next question I have is, is kind of a fun one. Um, what has been your favorite guest from the podcast so far? I got that this week and um, I've had, I, I've had a number of different guests. Uh, one of the ones that probably Luann, you're going to think is the most obvious answer to this is Dave Burke. The one I just released the, the top gun, Mm-hmm. Uh, aviator and, and instructor. And um, now he's working with uh, Jocko over at Echelon Front. He was great. I, I enjoyed that conversation a lot. But great. Yeah, but actually my favorite podcast guest so far has been Megan Metzger, CEO over at Decode. And the reason why is I live uh, in a world where my role is kind of a marketing hybrid and I need to focus on not only the marketing side and the demand gen side of things, but I also have a lot of conversations with customers and helping to enable customers and make them successful. And uh, I really felt like what Megan do, is doing over at Decode is, um, is very similar to what I'm doing, but in, in just a more um, focused way. And what they do is they sit at the intersection of technology and government. They help technology vendors understand how to market, how to get their, their information across around their technologies, because some of them are emerging. Some of them are Silicon Valley type companies that are, uh, are, they might be small, medium, large, it doesn't matter, but they haven't done business with the government. They don't understand it. And at the same time, she's helping these government organizations understand how to evaluate this emerging technology, some of which they don't know exists. And she had a lot of great insights. I enjoyed that conversation thoroughly, um, but that, that was my favorite. And I know, yeah. so I, I, I know you have your market chat show. Um, what, what's a guest that you've really enjoyed that you've had? You know, I'd have to say, Ooh, I've had several, but it historically it's, it's when I'm bringing in government people because we do government and industry. Mm-hmm. And we recently, um, early 2020, we brought in three senior level executives in the procurement department of Department of Homeland Security. And they, you know, it goes back to what you said earlier, Brian, that government are people like us. And 
we were jovial. We were laughing. You know, I hadn't met the three of them yet. And, you know, you usually try to come in. You're very professional, which we always are. And so are they. But over time, you start to kind of crack jokes with them and you're getting to know them. You're building a relationship with them. And they offered so much insight. They first off, they were so in sync with each other that I really love to see. They were finishing each other's sentences. They were really um, sharing really great information that one of the others have done. They're very innovative in that uh, um, within DHS for contract procurement. And they were also really full of great insight for government marketers. Like they really drilled in on how important websites are. And don't have your website just talking about what your product does, but make sure it's talking about what your product does for government. And if you're trying to go after a procurement, for example, talk about what the procurement wants. Don't mention the procurement. If the procurement is looking about a particular type of technology, make sure your website covers that. Because if not, they're saying they're chucking you out the door, right? They're not even going to look at a potential. Um, as well as make sure that you clearly identify that you do market to the government and sell to the government and how you do so. So they were one of my favorite um, just because of the great information that they shared for, to us. So the next question that I got, and I really like this one because it's something that I think a lot of marketers listening are are going through right now. Um, and the question is, events contribute a significant portion of my revenue each fiscal year. With live events gone for the foreseeable future, how can I make up the difference in other areas from what I'm losing specifically with live events? Um, this is something that, uh, again, most marketers are dealing with. I know at OpenText, um, we converted all of our in-person events um, and shifted them over to digital, uh, including some of our global ones. Uh, we had our Enterprise World Europe, which we shifted over to uh, to a digital event. And we, we actually had to go out and purchase some digital infrastructure to be able to facilitate some of these beyond just WebEx. We wanted something that was really professional to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and obviously there's revenue attached to each of these big live events that we do. I mean, we have thousands of people that come to these events um, and it, it goes towards uh, revenue numbers. So how do we shift that? So it's certainly something we've dealt with. And um, the, the obvious answer, uh, I think, and a lot of people have done this is you look at uh, virtual events, you look at webinars, you look at, uh, at, at different pieces of content you can push out, but, um, it's, it's been difficult, honestly. And I think you have to juggle the, uh, and another one of these, another one of the questions that I'm looking at is, is kind of another area that's complementary to this. You have to juggle the digital burnout. So we've struggled with, um, how many webinars are too many webinars and how much interaction digitally is too much. Um, so th this is, this is certainly a tough one, but I think, um, going back to where we initially spoke of some of the innovative ways you can reach out, we've seen some really innovative things. I mean, I, I know doing business with government um, kind of constrains us a little bit in, in some of the ways, but it, I think it also gives us a really captive audience that uh, that that really wants to engage and is looking for information. So I think it's it's more around feeding them the information that they want, how they want it, and making sure that we can capture it. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And and the step before that is, you know, talk about bringing clarity to the clutter. I mean, when is that phrase more relevant than now? Yeah. Because there are such a tremendous amount of virtual events that have been flipped, not just the large conferences, but also just a webinar, right? And everything in between. Uh, it's exciting to see how our vendor community are flipping there. For example, DOTUS, right? Or GeoInt 
are flipping their large conferences to virtual, and I'm really excited to, to see them and engage in them. But I think that where I would counsel a marketer is, um, number one, you have to do it. I mean, you've got to jump into that swimming pool with all the other vendors and, and OEMs and, and channel partners that are doing these virtual events. But the way to make your stand out, I would say, is graphically, make sure with what how you're advertising it. It's just bold. It's um, relevant. It's educational. Also, think about not doing I, you know the one-hit wonder webinar, right? Think about doing a series. Think about mm -hmm. doing three. And you're announcing the topics, and you're announcing the dates, and people get used to that, right? Versus, now, when was that event? Um, I'm actually creating a top 10 list of best practices for virtual events, but also the top 10 things to look out for when doing a virtual event, you know, because your keynote speaker loses their internet access. I mean, you're, you're dead in the water at that point. So you need to make sure that you're doing the virtual events. Um, you're really doing some creative marketing upfront to drive attendance. You're communicating with those individuals. I had two government people on a phone call the other day that were speaking on an event next week a conference next week and they both asked the conference organizer can you please send us very specific details on the link that we need to click on and one of them said that he was on a webinar the week before which he didn't make because they sent the link for him to click on one of the um, marketing assistants from the company sent him the link and she, he didn't know her name he didn't know how to go find that link and he didn't wasn't able to get on the call right away and you know we took him some time so there's some of those best practices that you just need to stop and think about. And because so many marketers are new to this, we're gonna to try to help them there and make sure we get these lists out to them. I think that detail orientation around things is really important, especially when you're dealing with um, people that are busy and they're, they're making time for you. And another thing to factor in when you're doing these uh, virtual events or webinars is think of the platform you're using because there's some, um, there's some platforms that certain government organizations can't log on to when I was when I was doing my interview with Katie Arrington it, she wasn't able to log on to the platform because the the Pentagon um, wouldn't allow that within the firewall so understanding what the platforms are that are needed another thing that I would uh, I would uh, also recommend and this is something that I've had success with uh, at open text is and it kind of fights the digital burnout too is allowing the audience to engage more, create events that are more engaging for them and not just allowing them to sit and listen to you for 45 minutes or an hour. Uh, and we've done virtual roundtables uh, with government employees. We've actually done this uh, for global governments, not just in the US. Um, and we found it to be um, pretty successful and, and people have enjoyed it. We will use a whiteboard, a virtual whiteboard. Um, we'll talk about some of the challenges they're having, ways they're overcoming those challenges and look for patterns um, so we can kind of talk to some of the patterns that we're seeing. So allow your audience to engage. I think that will make a, a event more attractive for them. And I also think it'll fight some of the digital burnout that you're seeing with, uh, with customers and prospects. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And you know, every single platform offers polling, just throwing out polling questions. And also that's relevant insight and research you'll get back. So it's a win-win on both sides. Yeah. The next question I like, a lot because it's honestly the premise for what I wanted to do with this podcast, uh, talking about engaging and educating around certain technologies as marketers, because we're not all often um, as up to speed on what's happening in that regard. But it, it, the question is, it seems like every day I'm hearing about new technologies and it's hard to keep up. What are some of the technologies that I should be aware of right now that my customers are interested in? 
Um, and, it, and this is a tough one, right? Because not every, not every company has a, a myriad of different technologies that they're marketing. Um, you have some that m- might solely focus on information management. You have some that are more services oriented. But um, I think there's definitely a couple that, um, that at least some folks within government should be aware of. One of the ones that I'll talk about is low code. And if you don't know what low code is, uh, low code platform, I would go check it out. Um, it's, it's enabling, um, kind of the future proofing of some of the enterprises in government. And right now when government organizations are struggling from a budgetary perspective, um, this is a, this is a technology platform that allows them to see value across their entire enterprise. You can create applications, whether it's for HR, whether it's for, um, grants management, uh, the list goes on and on, but it is so agile. It is so applicable to their their everyday workflows that I think it's one that governments are really hyper-focused on and that you're going to see um, some increased adoption of those types of platforms. Um, you mentioned AI earlier too, yeah. Luann. I think AI is one too, but um, and people, I think, tell me this, I, I think people hear AI and it can be intimidating. What is AI? How are they using it? Um, but Luann, what's AI to you? When you, sure. when you hear when you hear that, what, what does it make you think about? So it makes me think about um, you know doing things easier, right? Not repeating processes. Mm-hmm. We yesterday uh, you mentioned our GMARQU ideation calls, which we have on Tuesdays and Thursday mornings. I encourage everybody to attend um, GMARQU.com ideation to learn more information on that. But yesterday we had government executive uh, come in and talk about what government is doing around AI. And there's actually a presentation, you can listen to the audio from yesterday's presentation by James Hansen, which will share some use cases. And the PowerPoint that you can also download has examples across agencies, as well as the pillars about how you can use AI for cyber, for uh, citizens engagement, for law enforcement. So it's really good information. They've done quite a bit of research. And one of the interesting facts that came out that I was surprised at, which is a good tidbit of knowledge for government marketers and your other listeners here, is 53% of federal leaders surveyed said a lack of understanding around AI was their greatest challenge to introducing AI technologies within their government agency. And I was like, wow, AI is prevalent. AI is there. AI is, is here to stay for sure. But yet, 53% of government are struggling to understand how to use it. So what government marketers need to take from that is instead of doing your marketing collateral or your webinars around your technology, make sure you're talking about what it's going to do for government. List a challenge and how your AI solution is going to help that agency because you're going to be helping 50% of them. So that's a win-win for everybody. Um, I think also when, when I think about AI, you know, it used to be, I say used to be a year ago, right? Used to be, it's not that. <laughs> hey, ago. stuff moves fast now. You're like, ooh, cool. It's like, you know, cool stuff. Um, out of the box way, cool stuff. And now it's, it, we're seeing it daily in our interactions and we probably don't even know we, we are accessing it. When we're calling into different vendors, if, you know, we have a problem and you're on the phone with 800 number, they're probably automatically from that user training machine learning, understanding what our issues are and how they can help us. So it's, it's prevalent. It's here to stay. And I think that government is really one of the leaders um, in the world, probably for using AI. Yeah, I would agree. And, and when I think AI, I, what you said is absolutely accurate. It makes things easier. Um, but I also think data, I think of, um, I think of the insights that's come out of it. And 
in in that podcast interview I had with Dave Burke that I thought was very interesting, um, the statement that he made was uh, data isn't useful, information is. And that's exactly what AI can help you do. It can It can grab information out of the data that you have to allow these organizations to make decisions. And at the end of the day, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make more informed decisions moving forward. And I think that's the biggest use case around AI that I can think of that's applicable yeah, I think to government. AI probably has one of the largest ROI mapped to it than other technologies, perhaps. You know, another, speaking of other technologies, and I'm still bringing myself up to speed on this, so you could maybe even add some light to, to what all this is, but it's around the semantic web in Gov 3.0. Um, starting to see some of that. Basically, it's, you know, the extension of the World Wide Web through standards. And government is starting to talk about it. I've been hearing people like Pete Saronis, the former CTO um, of Energy, or Karen, um, who came, came out of, she was a CIO in the White House, or Kimberly Hancher, former CIO in EEOC. You know, they're all former CIOs that are now doing consulting. They're all ambassadors at GMARQ. And they're starting to talk about this. Semantic web. Um, I've now got my Google alerts set up to it so I can continue to educate myself around it. And I think it's tied in to, I, I'm not sure, but I'm thinking it's tied in as well to AI because with what I've read, it talks about how the goal of the semantic web is to make internet data machines readable. So you're going back to that data and making it readable. So taking that internet data and making it machine readable. So, so yeah, and maybe like open standards. So that's a big... Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big push around open government is, and there's a lot of stipulations around what open data looks like and, uh, and make sure that it's, it, it is machine readable. It's a common format. Um, every government has their rules around it, but there's a global organization called the open government partnership, uh, hmm. which kind of sets best practices around what open government looks like, um, because they want to make sure there's equity around data and, and you don't want something that is unstructured because then it's not necessarily machine readable for everyone you want it in a common format so and when they say common format they mean perhaps a format where they can go download a free reader on the internet so if it's a pdf or or something to that effect they don't want something that is is not something somebody can't serve up within their computer and take a look at but all of that is to not only um, allow for uh, open and transparent government, open and transparent data, but innovation. I mean, you think about the right. amount of in- innovation that comes from open source data. Uh, I mean, look at weather.com, weather.com or, or, or some of those sources. All of that comes from open source data from, from the government uh, because they, they're looking at weather trends and they look at patterns and they pull in from sensors that the government has paid for and the government has put out. And um, all of that goes towards uh, not only innovation from big companies, but innovation from small companies that that want to find different disruptions in the market. So um, think a very cool one to look for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think we got time for one more question. And this is actually an interesting take on it, not to end on a negative note, but um, we've talked about some of the things that have been successful um, in, the, in, in the pre-COVID strategy. But um, as marketers are looking to build out their fiscal year plans, what have been some things that you've seen that haven't been as successful? Um, and I think this is an interesting take on it because we have talked about all the th- the best practices and things that have right. worked out really well and, um, and kudos to those people, but some things that people have tried and, and just fell flat on their face. Have you seen some of those? 
I have. I absolutely have. Um, you know, one of them is not having a, back, a backup plan. So, for example, you're starting a webinar, a Zoom call. You've got a really important speaker, like I mentioned earlier in our podcast today, and they just don't show up. So little things like make sure you have a plan. For example, your VP of federal knows if there's like white space, they're going to start talking about something and you know what they're going to talk about. So make sure you've got those fillers, you know. Um, the other thing is this happened just this week on a fairly large media webcast is that they had didn't have enough ports. And so people were trying to log in and getting error messages. So those are simple things that you need to look for. From a marketing perspective, I would say that, um, and this is happening a lot right now, is a lot of marketers were not prepared with adequate content. Um, you know, we've always said content is king, and this has never been truer than now because we've had to shift and pivot all of our marketing to digital marketing. And if you don't have the necessary digital assets, i.e. white papers, uh, solution briefs, case studies, videos, podcasts, and a lot of marketers don't have these things. You might have a data sheet, but people aren't going to give you their information with the gated data sheet, right? So um, I think that's a that's a, a negative that I've seen across the board is just being ready. But I want to touch on a successful, happy thing as well is that mm -hmm. across the board with every single media company and every single webinar that I've been involved in, the no-show rate has dropped drastically. So it used to be, you know, it wouldn't be unforeseen to have a 60% no-show rate on a government webinar. Those numbers are down drastically closer to 25-30%. Yeah, I think they've been more accepting. I think that that's honestly been the the transition into the virtual world is it's not just the availability because a lot of these things have always been available. I think it's just more the acceptance now is this is where I can go to consume information. Yep. And then lastly, I would say uh, the mistake for doing a virtual event is doing a Me Too event. And I've touched on that earlier as well. Do something that you're not a Me Too. So the, one of the things you touched on, and I think it's a good point, is I think I, we talked earlier about how we can compensate for some of the, the revenue losses around um, live events shifting into virtual. And one of the ways not to do it is to try to get demand generation from things like data sheets or things that aren't providing value because that's going to turn people off right away. I've seen that. Um, you're absolutely right. I've seen that now as, as they've been trying to capture um, engagement, uh, but people don't want to give that information for something. And um, I think that's going to end up being a negative. And another thing I've seen, especially around content, and, and you said it, people didn't have a lot of the content in place. And as they tried to scurry to make a lot of this content, I think it's it's looked less professional. So we've seen... Um, even though some of it's been, some of the candid stuff has been uh, more readily accepted, I think there are some things, uh, some types of videos that haven't been as professional that I've seen out there that can really ultimately hurt the, uh, the efficacy of your brand. So I think you want to make sure that at the, at the risk of watering down your brand, you're not just throwing content out there to see what sticks. You want to make sure you're very strategic around it and then have a plan for it. So I, I've, I've seen one-offs, hey, there's this white paper ebook in, in response to things, but have a plan for it. If, if there is an ebook or a white paper, make sure it ties into perhaps a webinar or some type of follow on set of activities that you want these, um, these engagers to work towards. Don't just throw content out there and have no plan for it. 
Absolutely. And have, a, have that communication plan is so critical to know when you're releasing what and you, you're spot on integrated marketing. Never have a one hit wonder um, or a wacky wall walker, right? You've got to have yeah. a plan um, that has to touch multiple things. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, Luann, thanks for joining us today. This is fun. I feel like we have to do this on a regular basis. I think we should do it again. I, I agree. It's wonderful. And thank you so much, Brian, for uh, being the host of the uh, Government Huddle. You're doing an awesome job. This has been the Government Huddle podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at ChittisterAB. Stay safe, guys. Bye for now.